0: star wars 7x7 episode 1213 today action and tragedy in the tatooine desert from a certain point of view punch it chewy hi this is alvin johnson with the First legion and you're listening to star wars 7x7 the only daily star wars podcast Hey Rebel Rouser, welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod. and I was going to do three stories, which actually lines up with what I'd done in the past two podcasts where I talked about the stories from a certain point of view, which is the collection of 40 short stories that tell the story of Star Wars, aka A New Hope, from the point of view of all sorts of different characters, but it turns out that one of those stories is so meaty that it's going to get its own episode tomorrow. That would be Master and Apprentice, the story by Claudia. Gray. And I'm at the point where, uh, I mean, I'm fanboying over Claudia Gray in a way because I think so far everything I've read of hers I've loved. And I do wish that I could kind of dial back in time a little bit to reading all these stories and covering the names of the authors just as a, a way of making sure that I'm not just seeing Claudia Gray and going, oh, I think Claudia Gray is great. Anything she writes is great, right? I mean, I absolutely do. But I just, you know, I feel like I have to give myself some sort of opportunity for objectivity, I guess, is what I'm looking for here. This one happens to focus on Qui-Gon, and it's a story of Qui-Gon and Oyoan communing in the desert. And I will talk to you all about it in tomorrow's episode because there are things about Force ghosts that are revealed as part of the story that are pretty amazing. The two other pieces that I intended to talk about today, which I am going to talk about, are Rites, R-I-T-E-S, by John Jackson Miller, who is a familiar face to readers of Star Wars books, and also in the new canon as well. He's the author of the very first novel that came out in the new canon, A New Dawn, which featured Hera and Kanan from Star Wars Rebels. And then Meg Cabot writes the bru Lars retrospective, or I guess that's a decent enough way to put it. A recollection, a remembrance, maybe her own eulogy, as it were. It's in the first person. It's actually written by Baru White Sun Lars, and it is simply titled Baru White Sun Lars. And there's a line in here that's probably nothing, right? And yet, you read it for the first time, and you're like, what? We, what? 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 But. It's okay. I don't think it's necessarily indicative of anything. Peru is reminiscing and talking about how she wanted Luke to be able to go to the Academy, not because that's what she wanted, but it's because Luke wanted it, and she wanted Luke to have what he wanted. And in her reminiscence, it says, Okay, there might have been a small part of me that was hoping that if he went, things might turn out all right. Maybe if Owen had listened to me, we'd both be alive today, visiting Luke wherever he is now, spoiling his kids rotten, or watching the twin sun set here on Tatooine. And the word his kids, his specifically is in italics, right? So you meant to say spoiling his kids rotten. And of course, the thing you're reacting to is, what? Luke has kids? Kids? Plural even? And while I'm not willing to dismiss out of hand that it could in fact be the truth that Luke might have Multiple kids or have had multiple kids. I mean, it's certainly possible. I don't think we can necessarily draw the conclusion officially from this reference in here. I mean, I know as a parent, I've talked about uh, someday I'll get to spoil my son's kids rotten, right? And obviously, you know, they're 10 and 15 years old. They haven't had kids yet. They may not even have kids. Who knows? So it's a figure of speech. And I don't think we can jump to the conclusion that in reality, in the actual canon timeline, Luke does have kids. But boy, oh boy, when you first read that line, you go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I've been joined in the studio by our studio intern Kato here, who has found a wine cork. I've been collecting them for my mother-in-law, so she can make those fun wine cork wreaths that you might see in various places. Anyway, she actually makes those by herself. Point is, is that if you hear some knocking around in the background, that's Kato playing with a wine cork, and I'm loath to stop him. Um, anyway, so the Sith of Data work by Ken Liu is probably the funniest story so far I've read, and from a certain point of view, but. One of the funniest lines, I think, in general, has to be this one line from Meg Cabot's Brew White Sun Lara story. And she says, It turns out when someone puts a sweet little newborn into your arms, you can't say no, even if that baby is your husband's nephew by his stepbrother who's embraced the dark side. <laughs> just that crazy family tree layout there, just stated so simply, really tickled my funny bone. It's so convoluted that. You know, it sounds like a soap opera, which this is actually a space opera, Star Wars is. So you kind of think, oh, well, that's where the opera part comes from, I guess. Anyway, she's talking about how she thought that things were not going to end well from the moment Obi-Wan showed up and said, here, have a baby, as she puts it. And Baru has a beautiful reminiscence about how she decided this was the life for her regardless. Owen and she could not have kids (laughs) sorry a little squeak from Cato there and she apparently had a cooking talent as well but she decided that this was the life that she needed making other people as um, happy and feeling good When everything around them seems just awful, like that is her true talent, which she says, if you think about it, is what all good parents and cafe owners, as she possibly had been destined to be, uh, are meant to do. And she does reminisce at the end that she wishes Luke hadn't seen what happened to Owen and her that day with the stormtroopers. But then she says, then again, if he hadn't, he never would have gone off with old Ben, met the princess, destroyed the Death Star, and saved the galaxy. So I guess things did turn out all right in the end, didn't they? Then I don't know. That one just, you know, the story in general particularly touched me. Maybe being a parent helps too, but... Yeah, that one really kind of struck a chord with me. The Beru White Sun Laura story by Meg Cabot. So good on you, Meg. I'm going to take a quick break and then I'll come back with the details of John Jackson Miller's story about the Tuscan Raiders. Stay tuned. Hey, Rebel Rouser. slash TFA. Welcome back. All right, John Jackson Miller's story writes is about a Tuscan raider named Akoba, A apostrophe K-O-B-A, and his coming of age as a Tuscan raider, he defeats a crate dragon, a crack dragon, sorry about that, along with the help of his cousins, but he seems to be the one who is you know, really in charge and is defiant to the point of nearly... Causing trouble with the chieftain. That would be Ayark, A Y A R K, with the apostrophe after the A. A lot of A apostrophe names for sand people, apparently. So, anyway, he is so defiant, Akoba is, that he says, like, yeah, I'm a Tuscan now. Like, I'm an adult. I'm going to go lead my first hunt. I'm not afraid of anything. And Aarik says, "Well, you're kind of foolish not to be afraid of anything, but yeah, go ahead. It's up to you." So, their nighttime hunt turns out to discover R2D2 wandering through the desert wastes of Tatooine. And I have to say, this story writes was the seventh story in this collection, or is the seventh story in this collection? The Meg Cabot one is the ninth one, and the one I'm going to talk about tomorrow, Master and Apprentice, is the eighth one. But this seventh one, this is the moment where I thought. To myself, they are really doing a stupendous job of wrapping these other stories around the main narrative. I mean, it's not like I wasn't thinking, oh, these are pretty good stories already. Like, I'm enjoying these stories for the ones that came previously. But this is the moment where I thought, they are really doing a fantastic job of looking at the main narrative thread of the movie and wrapping stories around the sides of it. I'm really impressed. So they report back to Ayark and let him know what they've found. And Ayark is actually a little bit nervous about this because the territory through which the droid is trundling is not necessarily the greatest place in <laughs> memory of the Tusken Raiders for a start here's one of the narrative lines in here it says the droids trail passed not far from a place the chieftain said where an entire camp of tuscans had been mysteriously massacred in the night many cycles before most clans had avoided the ruins ever since, ascribing ill omens to the area. Clearly, this is a nod to Anakin Skywalker's massacre of the Tusken Raiders that had taken his mother hostage. Or captive, I guess, might be a better word for it. And so that was a neat interweaving of prequel era stuff into here as well. And in the morning, when they pick up the droid's trail again, this is, of course, R2 D2, they see the Landspeeder coming, and Akoba is the one who was pointing the long gun at Luke before a Yark tapped him on the shoulder and that's when they pulled away and hopped onto the banthas so now you have names for those two tuscan raiders that showed up in that one brief shot and aark actually doesn't want any part of what's about to go down he's been trying to tell A'koba, and A'koba is just not listening because he's young and impetuous and whatnot but aark has been saying like this place i tried to tell you it's near the lair of a powerful shaman and Akoba has no idea what he's talking about. Basically thinks this is just stuff to tell the kids at bedtime and scare them. But Aark is still the chieftain. And he says, hey, it's really weird that a farm boy and his droids are so far out here and near to this place where the shaman is. So be careful. Don't kill the boy. Just ransack the speeder, basically. And so Akoba does what he's told. He listens to the chieftain. He doesn't kill Luke. And so there you go. There's another situation where some outside force interceded he otherwise might have killed luke and so there's some additional context then when Obi-Wan comes wandering through the canyon making the dragon noise because these young Tusken Raiders had just killed a hatchling dragon and they're thinking, oh my gosh, it sounds like a queen and the queen is coming for her revenge. They freak out. And what was not necessarily clear in the movie but is made clear by this scene as it's told and from a certain point of view is that the Tuskens actually saw Obi-Wan, like I didn't necessarily know that the way the shots were constructed that they could see him. I thought we were just seeing, oh, it's just this guy in robes waving his arms around. But the Tuscans actually see him and they are freaked out by him. And so they beat it out of there. And once they feel like they're a safe distance away, they're talking about it. And he's saying he felt that it was a dragon coming for revenge in the sound. But when I looked, I saw that figure just kind of shook his head and he said, I did not trust my eyes. Like he just did not know what the heck he was doing. But he actually does say that he wants to go back and grab more people and say, you know, we've Given up this land to wizards for too long, like we can't allow wizards to be wandering around willy nilly or anything like that, which gains a yark a bit of respect, saying, you know, even after he had this fearful experience, that he was still willing to go fight. That gives him some measure of thinking, all right, Akoba might not be too bad someday. But it's also an interesting comparative because Obi Wan tells Luke that the sand people will be easily startled, but they'll return, right, and in greater numbers. and. Yet, there's been no evidence that they would necessarily do this, right? Because so far, they've just kind of stayed away from anything where the wizard was wandering around. Maybe Obi-Wan sensed something different this time about the situation. And this is a story, I'll be honest with you, when I saw what the story was when I first started reading, I'm like, oh, this is going to be the story of the Tusken Raiders around there. My initial reaction before I was like three paragraphs into the thing, I was like, eh, all right, so what? I'm just going to read this one anyway. Credit to John Jackson Miller for making a compelling story, and even with some of the philosophical musings of ARK the Chieftain as well. So another good set of stories from from a certain point of view. And that is gonna do it for the podcast today. Tomorrow we're gonna to talk about Master and Apprentice, the Qui-Gon Obi-Wan story by Claudia Gray. And then for the rest of this week, I've finally, finally gotten through Phasma. Not to say that it was a slog or anything like that. It just happened to be what Scorekeeper Declan and I have been reading at bedtime, and we finally finished it, so we'll be talking about Phasma and some of the reveals that we have about her backstory and about the First Order for the week to come. In the meantime, I want to say thank you so much, as always, for listening, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before your head gets stuck on a battle droid body, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And if the show's been worth your time, please support us at patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a series of bad puns, it's Destiny Unleashed. is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited, or their respective trademark and copyright holders may the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2017, Star Wars Sun Lesson. We hope you love it.